In this special 50th episode of the Scholars Podcast, I'm joined today by Amy McLennan and Jess Coldry to talk about endometriosis and the work they're both doing to spread awareness of the condition, something that affects one in 10 women worldwide. Amy is a 2009 John Monash Scholar and expert in medical anthropology, while Jess is a 2021 Victorian Government Scholar and technology artist and humanitarian engineer. After both were diagnosed with endometriosis, the two scholars are now working together to rally the John Monash Foundation's academic community and utilize their expertise to help better understand endometriosis and its effects on women in society. Amy and Jess, a very warm welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, Justin. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here. Okay, well, let's get started. How did you both start working together? It's a funny story, actually. Um, Amy and I obviously connected through the foundation, but she was actually on the selection committee for my scholarship application. So she knew me a little bit before I knew who she was. That's right. I was. Uh, I, I have the privilege of being one of the scholars that gets to pre-read um, and and help with initial selections on on the initial written applications. And Jess's application really stood out. There was a vignette that she described of of her work being um, one of the few women in a in the room at an engineering um, event, and it was a really remarkable both piece of storytelling, but also illustration of the kinds of work she was both doing and capable of doing. So. I've been a fan of Jess for a long time before she even knew I existed. <laughs> and Jess, did you know that Amy was a fan behind the scenes and was admiring your work from afar? No. So um, maybe a year or so after I got the scholarship, uh, I got a cold email from Amy and um, we have our wonderful Monash Minds newsletter at the foundation. So um, the foundation loves celebrating all the things scholars are doing and sharing stories. So I'd recently done an exhibition on endometriosis in France and uh, I guess they shared that on the newsletter and Amy must have seen, you know, the word endometriosis on there and when she found herself uh, in a moment needing to suddenly learn a lot about endo, I think um, she thought of me and reached out and asked for some uh, some tips or some things to read or a bit of a crash course in what was happening because um, you didn't really know too much about endo until your diagnosis, did you, Amy? No, I didn't. I had had um, several months of excruciating pain and uh, had been told in the end that I had appendicitis. So I was whipped into hospital very quickly to have my appendix out. Um, and I woke up from what you can imagine was a... Um, fairly hefty anesthetic and found myself facing a surgeon who gleefully said to me, good news, it wasn't your appendix, but we took it out anyway. Uh, bad news <laughs> is you've got endometriosis. And I said, endo what? And, uh, and then proceeded to swim back into sleep for a while and, and thought to myself, I've heard this word somewhere before recently. Where was mm -hmm. it? And it was the scholars newsletter. So I um, got my phone out as soon as I was able and texted Jess and said, look, you haven't heard of me before. I've been following your work for a while and I have some questions. Um, so that's how we all connected. And so we should probably clarify or at least define for those listeners that might not know 
what the condition is. So what is endometriosis, as you understand it anyway? I don't mind taking this one. So technically endometriosis or endo, which sounds a little less peculiar, um, is when tissue similar to the lining of your uterus grows outside of your uterus onto other areas of the body. It's something that um, one in 10 women have and it can cause a lot of really nasty symptoms, chronic pain, fatigue, uh, brain fog, uh, pain during sex, difficulty with uh, eating different foods. It's got a lot of different impacts on your lifestyle and it's something that requires a surgical diagnosis uh, and one of the treatment options it is lifelong but one of the ways to deal with it is through excision surgeries where they cut that tissue uh, out of your body and you describe um, there that you describe there the pain can you um can you try to describe what that what that pain is like i think it's uh, well as you mentioned a little bit before the chat i think uh, it's well known that the average diagnosis time is seven years and one of the reasons for that is it's so hard not only to have your pain believed but to actually describe it and put words to your symptoms because being such a subjective I guess socially performed thing on occasion pain you know is invisible to the eye and requires you know ranking systems or metaphors or drawing on you know experiences other people have that might not necessarily have the same illness so a lot of ways to describe endometriosis pain as opposed to say um, period pain uh, more broadly is that it's uh, often described as a burning pain a biting pain um, but I guess that presents differently because uh, mm. it's something that affects every individual in a different way or as uh, my surgeon put it a little bit more bluntly he said well basically you've just got large lifelong internal bleeding upon diagnosis for both of you, what are what are the feelings that uh, you are presented with? H how do you reconcile a diagnosis finally when it when it presents itself? I guess we've both had quite different experiences. So I knew what endo was before I had my diagnosis. I spent maybe five or six years, um, you know, visiting GPs and and trying to get my pain looked into without much success and. Uh, similar to Amy, perhaps I had a friend who mentioned something about endo and started investigating. And so a couple months before I left for my studies abroad with John Monash, um, I you know, realized I've got a couple months to sort this out. You know, I'd only really heard of it a few weeks earlier. And so I really had to campaign for my diagnosis, do a lot of research, you know, come up with monologues to read doctors and plans and research specialists and so when I got my diagnosis and I woke up and you know the the surgeon said you know you, you have it you've got your diagnosis you weren't imagining it the pain wasn't in your head you know you really do have endometriosis and we've been able to get a lot of it out it was just such a relief and so almost like validating and the fact that I could identify with that community of other endo sufferers who'd been kind of helping me through that journey was yeah kind of a, a happy moment almost in realizing that there was an, an answer or some way of dealing with what had been happening for the years preceding that. And I think for me you know there's it's absolute surprise to come across 
something in the medical world where my running assumption is we have great advanced medicine these days. We're moving into personalized medicine. We've got um, we've got access to all sorts of incredible healthcare, and yet here is a here is something that in the 1930s. Um, a, a medical specialist said, and I quote, the novelty and glamour surrounding these tumours has largely disappeared and the more adventurous spirits in gynaecology are turning their attention to other problems. So in the 1930s, we thought it was done and dusted. Mm. By the time we get to the 1980s, um, this condition is understood as something which affects largely American women um, who are single in their 30s and 40s um, with a decent income, uh, no children, and a tendency towards anxiety. Um, what we can see there is there's certainly a skew in the data set towards people who have the means to pursue the lengthy diagnoses and multiple scans you need, um, who have a, have potentially a tendency to, to persist a little more in the face of knockbacks uh, by doctors or medical professionals and by people who are potentially exploring why they're not having children. Um, to the 2000s, where we still think this really only affects a minority of people, to present day, where we're starting to understand that we're pretty sure this affects at least one in 10 uh, people assigned female at birth and potentially more because we don't really know. Um, mm. And it just absolutely surprises me and, and kind of in a way uh, excites me that there are these kind of areas that still exist to which we can really contribute. To making a difference so upon diagnosis uh, of endometriosis how is this managed how do you get by and obviously it's going to be different for everyone but i'm keen to know more on the outcomes that are possible for women who have endo I think it depends a bit um, on, on what you're aiming to achieve with, with management. Uh, there's certainly no cure at this point, so you can scratch that one off the list. Um, okay. In terms of management, uh, some folks think about managing pain, um, which may be managed through a range of hormone treatments or social interactions or care. Um, it may be managed by dietary changes. There are trials around acupuncture. So there are lots of ifs here. Um, rather than a lot of great evidence. Um, and some things certainly work for some people and not others. Uh, for some people, the biggest impact will be that it limits fertility. Um, so one of the biggest ways to address it is to figure out ways to potentially have children if that is something that someone wants to do. Uh, for some people, it can really debilitate relationships. So it's about building or rebuilding relationships and understanding. And for some people, there's a huge financial impact Um which has implications for savings or um, for ability to afford other things in life or even the healthcare that's needed. Um, and for others, it, it disrupts their daily work um, and their daily life. So finding ways that we can support workplaces to be more accommodating of folks um, who are kind of struggling in, in a workplace relation sense can help too. So I guess in terms of a way forward, there are many and they're all largely unexplored still. Mm. How about you, Jess? Yeah, I would say, you know, I'd echo everything Amy's mentioned there. You know, obviously um, with chronic pain, it's often different every day. So some days you might not be able to walk or you might be, you know, vomiting from the pain of something or other days it might be more of a, a softer kind of just pain that can sit in the background while you're going about your daily life. But 
um, you know, a lot of different ways to test and manage things. And I'm a couple years in to my diagnosis, so I suppose I'm still, you know, iterating what medication looks like, the diet looks like, the routine looks like. But I'd say most of all, managing it um, is a pretty big mental game. And as Amy mentioned, you know, it impacts your relationships, your sense of self, your mental well-being, and more coming to terms with um, how to deal with pain and how to have space for that in your daily life without beating yourself up or blaming yourself um, is something that, you know, takes a bit of time to heal, especially if, like many people on their endo journeys, you've had, you know, five years, seven years, 20 years of Um, you know telling yourself it's nothing it's just period pain and really you know putting yourself down Um, you know like you're you're weak or you can't handle it like other people can it takes a long time to kind of bounce back and rewire that thought process so from my perspective at least I think that's a really big part of managing living with endo. How do you get endometriosis? How does it happen? It's a bit of a mystery so There is links in terms of, um, you know, if uh, people in your family have it, you're more likely to have it. But I don't believe it's been clinically um, linked uh, in terms of, you know, where it comes from or the reason. But um, I can maybe defer to you, Amy, you might have a bit more insight with your background. Justin, you've hit upon a question that (laughs) the medical community um, doesn't have an answer to yet. Is that right? Yeah, I was just thinking, like, how does this happen? And we don't know yet. Does it surprise you that we don't know? No, it doesn't really. It doesn't. Why why not? Well, you tell me. Is there a medical bias surrounding endodiagnosis? Absolutely. I suppose Amy delved into that history a bit earlier around, um, you know, male doctors last century looking at this pain women were experiencing and their accounts of, you know, how they were feeling or what was happening to them physically and, you know, that association with hysteria and a lack of taking the disease seriously, you know, as if, um, you know, if it was asthma or diabetes or something that affected both sexes, it does pose to say, you know, would it have been given more attention, interest, research, funding, or even uh, kind of respect and belief Mm. around those symptoms. So I think on that personal level, there is a lot of bias. And since I guess menstruation is quite a taboo topic in the first place, it's something that um, doctors or or family members or, say, teachers, you know, are quite quick to shut down and sweep under the rug. So there's that sense of bias, but... I would also say in terms of how endo works in the kind of medical community, I've got a little bit of an insight, I suppose, into how that functions culturally. So I was a a laureate of the Australian French Association for Innovation and Research, and there I looked at how endometriosis diagnosis plays out in Australia and in France and was able to compare a little bit how those kind of relationships function between GPs, nurses, surgeons, researchers, patients. And I suppose the biggest reason 
bias accumulates is people, you know, being stuck in a, a profession with their kind of blinkers on and not necessarily collaborating or speaking to others, you know, working in that field or with lived experience. And I think that in itself can create a lot of uh, asylums and I suppose looking at an illness that affects so much of people's lives in so many ways, it does require a lot of knowledge from different disciplines and a lot of um, back and forth between different professionals in order to get a diagnosis and get a care plan together. So I think that um, without that necessarily happening to the extent that it could have over the past several decades, uh, it is a very tricky space to navigate and, and look at improving. And I think more broadly to that, um, you know, two aspects of of medicine um, really come into play here. One is the kind of long history of gender bias that that we have in in the medical world in general. Um, everything from staffing to the gender of rats used in uh, clinical trials and laboratory trials, which until uh, maybe. 20 years ago, still largely was just male um, male rats, for example, because it was felt that they were less hormonal and unpredictable than female Stop rats. Stop it. Really? Um, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really recent history and it's only right now that we're starting to see a few agendas start to gain some traction looking at sex differences in medicine. So this idea that mm. maybe there are sex differences to the way immune systems work, for example, or the way hormones affect the body. And rather than just having one trial set, one set of research that's largely based on the male body, thinking about how do we how do we investigate differences and, and, and what might they look like? And that's on everything, including around, say, the effect of a COVID vaccine. There may be sex-linked reasons that it's acting differently in, in men and women, but we don't mm. know. They're not questions mm. we've necessarily asked so much in the past. So on the one hand, you've got a long history of gender bias. That plays out every day, um, by the way. So when I went to the emergency room, for example, at one point with severe pains in my abdomen, I was told by a sprightly young um, doctor that it was probably just bad period pain and that I should go home and take some paracetamol. Um, so it really does still refract through the assumptions we see in medical practice today. And the other thing, of course, is a long history of kind of segmentation of medical professions. And as Jess says, what we see is something like endometriosis slips through the gaps. So if you have endo on your lungs, maybe you should see someone who is a respiratory physician, but they don't do gynecological problems. So then right, you get sent yeah. back to the gynecologist and the gynecologist says, well, this isn't my area of expertise. I work with the waist down. Um, but then if it's inflammation, it's really the domain of uh, of an immunologist, which is different again, um, versus a pathologist who's diagnosing things based on a different set of kind of indicators again. Um, and, and then you've got your general practitioners and you've got the people who do the scans, some of whom can spot endometriosis on a scan and some of them can't. Um, so, so you end up with a whole range of medical practitioners needing to be involved and a distillation of endometriosis down to but this is just a gynecological problem and unfortunately it's not within the realms of gynecology to deal with everything from the social to the workplace um, to pain management to mm. um, to immune system function it's just beyond their remit so um, and that's a broader kind of medical systemic question so in terms of progress if any that's being made in relation to identifying treatment care how is australia stacking up our health system our expertise in in treating endometriosis 
Well, I mean, for me, one thing that's progress, Justin, is us sitting here having a conversation about yes. something in public, which in the past would have been considered just a women's issue. So that, mm. for example, I think is progress. Um, and the you are willing to talk to us about it um, is likewise. Australia is one of the few countries in the world to have um, to have done some national level um, policy work um, and have an action plan around endometriosis. So in a way, we're leading the way. And uh, the flip side of that is we still have a long way to go. Mm. How about you, Jess? Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose um, especially those early conversations I think are quite pivotal in schools, you know, around sexual health and that sort of thing. Those first conversations around periods and pain, I think that's something that at least, you know, 10 years ago when I was in those conversations, they weren't reflecting issues like endometriosis, adenomyosis, um, PCOS. And I think that that's a really important aspect of what leadership should look like and should be, you know, something a part of every school all around the world, I think. Um, so that's something I suppose is starting to be done more and more. The Pelvic Pain Foundation does some work in that area. I think there was a really successful pilot over in South Australia a few years ago looking at some of that early intervention work. But I think that, you know, that's just one simple, easy to implement example that could lead to a more engaged, aware and respectful you know, national community. So when, uh, you know, your family member, your friend, your colleague comes to you and you know, says they're going through something, you actually know what that is and you know how to hold space for that and have a conversation and, you know, how to support loved ones who are going through something so isolating and invisible, you know, just that basic level of awareness is something I still think we're really lacking on a community level, but mm. at least, um, you know, we are grateful those conversations are happening on a national level and we have organisations like Jean Hales, Endometrius Australia, Quendo, who do a variety of research and advocacy work. But, you know, we just want to see more and we want to see people from more sectors and more disciplines owning and engaging with endometriosis on more of a impactful and meaningful level. So if we wind the clock back three years, it was the start of the COVID-19 outbreak. The world essentially stopped in its tracks as we tried to figure out what was going on. And you, you had the scientific community, the doctors, everyone, uh, big pharma working together, throwing everything they could in trying to come up with a vaccine and a cure. And towards the end of that year, uh, I think that was the first vaccine came out and was, was rolled out thereafter. So it, it can be done when people work together for a common cause. So why do you think it is, and I don't even know if there's an answer to this, that a similar effort can't be made for something as serious and debilitating as endometriosis? I think personally, it might even come back to that piece Amy mentioned earlier about glamour. You know, it's not the most glamorous illness and it's not something people like to discuss at the dinner table and um, you know even more so in the boardroom or you know on important public platforms on a national level so I think that that lack of willingness to have conversations is something that affects funding 
and therefore affects our ability to research and, and find, you know, critical information and treatment and diagnosis innovations. So, um, yeah, I think it's really about breaking down those barriers and, you know, saying to our leaders, this is something that's important to us. This is something we want to have more attention given to and being able to elevate the voices of those people with lived experience who have been really silenced for so long in so many cases. From my perspective, I think there are three assumptions at least that are uh, maybe standing in our way a bit and changing assumptions is always hard. I think that the first assumption is that this sort of condition or endometriosis is a gynecological issue. As soon as we assume that, it becomes the purview of very few researchers and very, very little amount of attention. Um, whereas something that Jess and I talk about in our project and we hope to talk about with other John Monash scholars is how do we disrupt that assumption that it is only the purview of the gynecological community and instead think about not only every allied health practitioner, everything from nursing to physiotherapy to um, pharmaceuticals and drug development to diagnostics, right through to workplaces and how we support people in the workplace or um, how we support family members, mental health, how it changes the way you engage with community sports teams, what kind of conversations are we having in educational facilities with kids, both boys and girls, mm-hmm. um, to understand that kind of some of these issues happen and will happen in their family and communities. Uh, so until we can disrupt the assumption that it is only a gynecological issue, we have a long way to go. Mm. Mm. Um, I think something that standing in the way still is the assumption that maybe it's pain is normal to some degree. So this assumption, well, it's not lethal and and if it's just period pain, maybe it will go away by itself. I think it wasn't until my GP looked me in the eyes one day and said, pain is not normal. If you have pain, we need to sort this out. And I think for a lot of us, some pain is kind of normal or manageable, especially women. So until we kind of overcome that assumption as a society, I think we've got a long way to go. Um, and I think there's also a, a set of assumptions then around um, what possible solutions there will be. And I think, you know, the obvious one is to say, well, pharmaceuticals have a lot to gain from this because it's a chronic condition. So you could potentially develop drugs you could sell people for life. Um, that's the cynic in me, but also that could be one interesting source of, of ways forward. Um, but until we can imagine a world in which medical uh, problems could be addressed by folks outside of the medical domain as well. Um, I think we have a long way to go to. So to your point earlier around what's causing it, I don't know, but if it's something in the environment um, that may be contributing, then people who know environments and change over time could really be useful in the conversation too, or if it's something that's about social connections or relationships. Um, So all of these kind of questions are still really open questions. Well, let's focus now on the work you're both doing to increase awareness about endometriosis. What specifically are you doing? You've teamed up together and I know you're tapping uh, the expertise of the foundation, uh, the scholars through there, but what, what, what is the work that uh, is involved in the project you're working on? Well, Jess and I uh, saw an opportunity in the foundation uh, for some small grants to fund collaborations. And we kind of thought, well, we've been talking about endometriosis together for a while and maybe there's something we could do that's more than talk about it. So we had to think about what small project we could propose. And 
one of the ways we think we and the community of scholars could make a difference would be to start a conversation about it that's more broad and that really leverages the uh, the diversity of perspectives um, and disciplines that the scholars bring to the table. So we're proposing having a two-day workshop the first day where we work with scholars to give them a bit of a uh, endo for leaders masterclass in what endometriosis is and how you could be a great leader in a context where someone you know or someone in your network or someone you manage has endometriosis. And then pull into a second day where we say to the scholars, well, how could you, from your perspective or your experience or your um, networks, contribute to either um, new ideas, uh, to building the conversation differently, to um, encouraging each other um, uh, or to doing new research? Um, I think at the moment the space is really open for everything from ideas to new perspectives to new work. So we're really keen to hear what scholars could contribute. Anything to add on that, Jess? Yeah, I think it'll be a, a really exciting few days. We're definitely looking forward to putting it together. And it's such a fantastic community of scholars. You know, we've got hundreds of people at the top of their fields from all different disciplines. And we think that's something that will be really interesting to leverage together, you know, to unite together on this theme. So um, with my work as an artist, I do a lot of stuff looking at visualising endometriosis symptoms, uh, making work about the social performance of pain and how um, having an identity as someone with endo affects how I navigate the world. And I think bringing some of that art into the masterclass and the design type workshop we're looking at doing will be hopefully something that gets people out of their comfort zones and into a place of creating and looking at um, what they can come up with that's out of the box and innovative and hasn't been done or hasn't been said before. And, uh, yeah, looking at a lot of those design thinking tools, those, you know, creative sketching approaches and, and things like that, uh, I think personally is something I'm really excited to bring to the conversation as one of my skills but you know as we said everyone whether you're an educator an economist an environmentalist you know, everyone has something to bring to the table and an experience they can offer to the endo conversation so that's what we're looking forward to the most. And do you see the potential uh, for this work that you're both doing, this project expanding beyond the John Monash Foundation community? I suppose with that focus on leadership, um, obviously, you know, uh, the, the John Monash Foundation really celebrates the idea that anyone can be a leader, no matter if you're young, old, you know, in a senior position or doing volunteer work in your community. Anyone can be a leader for endometriosis in the same way, um, you know, helping elevate the voices of others or using their own lived experience. So we would really love to see this conversation and this um, imperative to have more people leading the conversation extend into workplaces across Australia. So we've toyed with the idea a little bit of, you know, if we test out teaching these leadership skills, these approaches to conversations and innovation for better care and, and better inclusion of those with endo, um, that's something that could quite feasibly translate into other contexts and we think we might be able to learn a little bit from almost piloting this program with the scholars 
and on another level we'd love to be a part of the broader conversation on you know, national level or policy level uh, and really help that lived experience carry through to the actions that affect the daily lives of our community okay well we're out of time uh jess and amy uh thank you so much for coming onto the show thank you for sharing your stories and your fantastic insights uh with us and the the john Man monash foundation community more broadly we wish you well in the years ahead particularly with this project uh, and please let us know if there's anything we can do as a community to to assist you. Uh, we salute you and thank you very much for your time and all the very best. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having um, this conversation with us. And, you know, it's really great that you're engaged in the conversation yourself. So we appreciate it lots.